Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue one of our comics bracket. Welcome to 2019. So since we are starting a new bracket, let's go ahead and talk about it. We do have a post breaking down why we chose the films that we did. You can find that on our Twitter as well as our Facebook. But as a brief summary, these are comic book film adaptions that aren't part of the big two, or at least aren't directly part of the big two. We're allowing some imprints, but none of the mainline stuff. There's also some weirdness with Watchmen. Originally, it wasn't meant as part of the normal DC stuff, but is getting brought in. Comics are weird. But we thought this bracket was kind of timely. I mean, there are a lot of comic book films coming out year upon year, a lot in 2019. In fact, a number of the films that we're going to be talking about on this bracket have a new installment or reboots in the works. Really? I know there's a Men in Black movie coming up, but what's up next? We also have a Spawn film coming out that is going to be starring Jamie Foxx. Ooh. Uh, there's talk about a Krull remake starring Jason Momoa. Oh. We are also getting a new Hellboy. Which is not, unfortunately, on this bracket. I'm really sad that it's not, but as we did with our Disney bracket, we will be having a few honorable mentions episodes, and you can definitely expect a Hellboy retrospective will be one of them. It will probably be Right Hand of Doom-sized. But... With that intro out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about our two films this week, 1997's Men in Black, as well as 2010's Red. Let's go ahead and do plot summaries. Sure. So, Men in Black, based off the 1990 comic from Air Cell Comics, after chasing a supernaturally agile perp who then jumps off a building, NYPD officer James Edwards is recruited into an extra-governmental organization called the Men in Black by a man named Agent K. The organization exists to hide the truth of extraterrestrial life, manage the aliens who reside on Earth, and preserve interplanetary peace. J&K's first major assignment after becoming partners is to investigate the arrival of a bug, known for causing chaos and destruction. The bug has taken over the body of a farmer and is searching for a power source held by a member of the Arkelian royal family on Earth. The bug assassinates the prince, but is unable to find the galaxy that the royal was safekeeping. The agents in the bug realize the galaxy is on the collar of the prince's pet cat at roughly the same time and race to the morgue to grab it first. In the ensuing fight, the bug manages to escape with the galaxy as well as a medical examiner hostage, but is stranded without a ship. Jay realizes the bug is heading to the Old World's fair site that has two ships from the first contact disguised as towers. The agents manage to prevent the bug from fleeing and return the galaxy to the Arkelians. However, Jay reveals that he wasn't training Jay as a partner, but as a replacement. Jay mind wipes Kay, who returns to his old life with the cover of Waking Up from a Coma. The film ends with Jay training the medical examiner, now Agent L, as his new partner. Meanwhile, 2010 saw the release of Red. Based on a Wildstorm comic from the early 2000s, Red is the story of Frank Moses, played by Bruce Willis, who is a retired CIA operative. He has an empty life, apart from some ongoing flirtations with Sarah, who works at the pension office helpline. One night, a wet work team breaks into his home. He quickly dispatches them, then runs to Kansas City to kidnap Sarah for her protection. She grows to trust him as they run around the country trying to figure out who's after them. While doing so, they meet up with a lot of Bruce Willis's old uh, buddies, John Malkovich, Morgan Freeman, Helen Mirren, Brian Cox. They're all considered red, retired, and extremely dangerous. The vice president is using the CIA by way of Moses' successor, Carl Urban, to eliminate all traces of his past war crimes. However, in the process, Sarah is captured. To get her back, the red team pulls off a heist to kidnap the vice president, intending to trade him for Sarah. Carl Urban, disgusted at learning all the shady goings-on, helps the red team take out his boss and agrees to do all the paperwork so that they can go back to their quiet lives. A singer reveals they did not. 
I'm not gonna lie, this was definitely an adjustment after our last bracket. Yeah. There are way more explosions in these movies than there ever were in Disney films. Also, I guess less wholesome messages in these two. Yeah. Let's go ahead and dig into Men in Black. All right. When the credits come up on this movie over the not super well aged CGI dragonfly, I'm like, wait, this is a Steven Spielberg movie? And then at the end of it, I'm like, wow, this is definitely a Spielberg movie. He didn't direct, but he was a producer. Uh, Amblend Entertainment is his production company. And I think, honestly, that's one of the reasons that this did so well. I mean, 97 was like peak Spielberg right around then. You also have some juggernauts in casting. You Will Smith, who is kind of just getting into his film career out of you know, television and music. Right before this, he had done Independence Day and before that, Bad Boys. So this was just continuing his action star streak. And those all came out in the last year or two before this film. So this is Will Smith making a radical adjustment from The Fresh Prince. Mm -hmm. Then you also have Tommy Lee Jones, who was in Volcano that came out the same year, Batman Forever before that, and has a long history of film stretching back to the early 70s. And still working, apparently having not aged playing more or less the same character the entire time. I mean, I love Tommy Lee Jones, but... Also, can we just comment how serendipitous it was to cast actors with the last name Jones and Smith as two clandestine government agents? Yeah, that worked out really well. You also have Vincent Nafrio as a bug who can barely fit into this ill-fitting man suit, and it's amazing. I think popular culture has more or less forgotten that role for its just delightful physical acting, and I'm really sad about that. D'Onofrio is doing an excellent job here. It's no wonder that this is seated number one on its bracket. The acting here is a joy. And the writing is also really good. The story is tight, it's compelling. They do a good job of setting up the world, and while there are a number of sequences where Kay basically just tells Jay the plot and the setup, it never feels like it. It makes sense. This is Jay getting onboarded for a new job. Of course, there'd be a lot of, here's how everything works. We definitely have the, he's the new guy, so we're going to plot dump everything at him. And it's done really well. Jay is always getting just enough information for him to be able to figure out what's going on. And same for with the audience. It helps that a lot of times people getting plot dumped to are kind of naive waifs who are, you know, glassy and starry-eyed, whereas here... It's Tommy Lee Jones being very dry and bored with the whole thing and Will Smith doing the Will Smith thing. You kind of put up with it because it's also a comedy routine. They play off each other extremely well. Jones as Kay also has some really just dry one-liners. The first introduction when they're giving fake names to Beatrice, the farm wife, uh, he says that Jay's last name is Black. And you just see Jay give him this side eyes, like, really? You're going to say I'm Mr. Black? Then, not missing a beat later on when they're at the morgue, he gives Jay the alias Dr. White, which results in the same exact side eye from Jay. <laughs> There's also a lot of critique of the U.S. government at one point. Kendrews himself is being from the FBI and some. You here to make fun of me too? No, ma'am. We at the FBI do not have a sense of humor we're aware of. There's also uh, during the recruitment process where Zed is testing all of these Army, Navy, Marines. After the testing is done, gentlemen, congratulations! You're everything we've come to expect from years of government training. And it's just the most subtle shade, and it's great. There's an underlying thread that the U.S. government is maybe not that good at things in general. The narrative opens with a group of immigrants being smuggled over the border and a space alien being among them. And Kate sarcastically compliments the border patrol, you know, saying, Keep on protecting us from the dangerous aliens 
contempt and it's very clear that his contempt is only kept in check by the necessity of doing his job well. Watching this film in the current year was honestly really nice to see. Although, fun fact, here they're INS agents, which INS doesn't actually exist anymore. Uh, it was uh, kind of reshuffled into ICE after the Department of Homeland Security was created in 2003. I will say Men in Black is functionally ICE but for space and it's not always great. It could be a lot worse. They don't have like a shoot on site policy. They do generally try to like make sure everybody's okay. They don't automatically assume that all aliens are criminals. But there's uncomfortable undertones there that the film only somewhat manages to address. MIB is kind of this weird combination of customs and border patrol as well as like the TSA and also a diplomatic organization. A bit of secret service in there too. And so you kind of got this hodgepodge and unfortunately some of the issues with law enforcement and some of those systemic issues come along for the ride. They do a pretty good job of trying to balance helping the aliens versus not. But if you take a look at the way that they deal with the bug in the film, as opposed to the way that the bug is dealt with in issue two of the three-issue comic series from 1990, it's like night and day. In the comic series, the bug is effectively on a scavenger hunt. It's kind of a ritual for them. Their home planet has food scarcity and they come from a so they need to return with a odd kind of useless object in order to earn their food and that happens to be a earth weapon he's trying to get the edgar analogs gun and jay talks to them figures out what's going on it's like oh here just take my pistol and that works and the bug aliens just leave and never come back you can kind of take this the other way and you see in that comic K is completely ready to just murder the bug for daring to step on Earth. But K is also very different in the comic. K feels like he stepped out of Apocalypse now. He's a complete sadist. There's a lot more tension in the relationship between J and K in the comic as opposed to J and K here. I like the adjustments that they've made to the adaptation though. It's much easier to follow along here than it was in the comic because I care about both of the men in black as opposed to just one of them. The signature sequence for Jay is the testing of all the different people who are the potential candidates for the new agent. He kind of does things in a very typical way from all these like top military brass who have all these like medals and stuff. Very outside the box thinking. Outside the box thinking, kind of a, a disregard for decorum, which makes me like him. And then also in a simulation where they're given guns and bright flashing lights and some scary images, he's the only one who properly identifies the threat as being a innocent looking child who actually ha might have something nefarious going on, whereas they all shoot at the scary looking aliens who are just, you know, living their lives. It's an interesting commentary on profiling. I think it probably doesn't hold up under scrutiny, but I get what the film was trying to tell us about Jay from that scene. It's also followed by getting info dumped via K after he passes the testing and is chosen. And they just go and sit on a bench out by the shore and K's like, here's the truth. You can join us or you cannot. You, you've got till the morning to decide and he just kind of leaves him there. And then the film just has Jay sit on that bench until sunset for hours, figuring out, is this the path I want to go down? That is where one of my problems with the film comes in, though. Fair enough. So the whole thing is, if he takes this job, he doesn't exist anymore. He gets scrubbed from reality. All records of him at like the DMV school and all that jazz get deleted. Fair enough. However, we haven't seen that he's giving up anything from that. 
He doesn't have like a kid or a family or a girlfriend. He seems to sort of have emerged whole cloth from New York. And that's not necessarily a problem, but it means that he's not giving up a life. He's just sort of shifting what his life status is. It doesn't really detract from things that much. I think it would have only weighed the plot down if he had like some daughter he constantly goes back to to be like, ah, so far away, my daughter. As in, I guess, Suicide Squad. But it does make that scene have less weight than it could have had. I think part of the reason that they avoided that with Jay is because that's kind of Kay's plot. He is still pining over the woman that he had to leave to be part of the MIB. And I I think if both of those characters had to go through that, then I think it would have weighed the plot down too much. I also do need to point out that even in this canon, Will Smith's character is not originally from New York. There's a little bit of an Easter egg when they're talking about (laughs) his third grade teacher and Kay pulls her up on this surveillance screen and you can see location, Philadelphia. So even here, Will Smith's character is West West Philadelphia. Philadelphia, I do also want to praise the practical effects. Oh my God, have they aged so well. There's a bit where Jay's holding an alien baby, and I had the thought, wow, that's really good CGI for 97. That can't be CGI. That's a puppet? That's a puppet? It looks so good and and so intricate. It looks better than, like, the CGI dinosaurs from the most recent Jurassic Park movies. It's just exquisite. Because practical effects hold up really well. You can also take a look at the Archelian prince inside his, like, giant person robot suit. But just how detailed that animatronic is is remarkable. Mm -hmm. I really wish more films went with practical effects. I know there's going to be a huge swath of films that just aren't going to hold up almost 20 years. No, over 20 years later like this one has. This film actually won an Academy Award for Best Makeup that year. And it was also nominated for Best Art Direction and Original Score because it's Danny Elfman. Yeah. Great choice, by the way. Right. There are a few instances of computer-generated characters on screen that have not aged terribly well. There's a scene towards the beginning of the film with Mikey the alien after he goes berserk that's computer-generated. That's not terrible partially because it's dark and the camera is not focusing on him terribly well because he's like sprinting at someone so it's not too bad but then we have the bug after it has left the edgar suit and it's not the greatest looking to be fair they completely rewrote the ending about five months into filming they originally had an animatronic bug But it wouldn't work for the new ending, and so they spent four and a half million dollars on this one. Wow. I'm kind of good to see the animatronic bug. That would have been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And and really, while the CGI doesn't look good, the design is still good. The way it's shot is still good. It Mm -hmm. still feels big and menacing, Mm -hmm. and the conflict feels engrossing and fun. Yeah. It doesn't feel bad. It just feels a little out of place. It, it's like the tunes in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They never look like they're supposed to blend in with anything, but in there, they weren't designed to, whereas here they were supposed to. Right. There are a few, like, not great fatphobic jokes in this that I don't know if they were written in or improvised, but they're not great. Don't like them. It's not, like, omnipresent, but it's enough that I was like, ooh, mm. Uh. Yeah, one scene is where uh, Jay talking to his superiors at the NYPD, one of the beat cops is a heavyset white guy and is being super antagonistic. 
and it's very likely that there's some tension due to a difference in age and also very much a difference in race. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Smith quips back with some fat jokes. It's not the best, but it makes sense in context for how antagonistic that relationship is. Right. There are some other issues. Because the film is drawing this parallel between extraterrestrials and immigrants, which is a very easy parallel to draw, there's some issues with talking about the bug, and they always call it the bug, and how that ties into anti-immigrant propaganda stuff that we are seeing right now with the immigration debate in the U.S. They try to subvert it a little bit by having other aliens who are immigrants and refugees that the MIB is incredibly welcoming towards and is is trying to help, but it doesn't make up for the other problematic stereotypes that they're promoting here. That said, if you're interested in a comic book dealing with immigration and sci-fi. You should look into LaGuardia. It's written by Nanette Okorafor, and it's really good, and the art is really cool looking. There's one less problematic thing that we need to touch on. The film kind of falls into a few anti-Semitic tropes. Oh yeah, I see what you're talking about. The Arkelian Empire is a pretty sizable empire in the galaxy, as far as we're led to believe. And they have a battle cruiser that is set to destroy Earth if the galaxy isn't returned because they don't want it to fall into enemy hands. And the Arkelian Prince on Earth is disguised as a man named Gentle Rosenberg. And tying a Jewish-coded character into this cover-up to prevent everyone on Earth from knowing that this character is part of a intergalactic empire that controls vast swaths of the galaxy is not the best. Um, it, it ties into a lot of anti-Semitic stereotypes, and the guy even runs a jewelry store. It's a relatively minor thing, and the only reason I caught it is because I was looking. Mm. I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up here. Yeah. One thing I will say that's more of a positive thing, Dr. Weaver, the morgue tech played by uh, Linda Fiorentino, is a lot of fun. She gets to have spunky character, and she isn't just a damsel. She winds up shooting the alien at the end. That's pretty cool. And like even films today struggle to let the hero have a love interest character who also gets to stand up on her own. And it could have been a lot more, but still not bad. Mm-hmm. Speaking of damsels, want to talk about Red? Yeah, let's go ahead and move over. Okay, so a uh, trouble this film has that Bruce Willis who's playing a character, but I'm not going to name the character. He's just Bruce Willis playing Bruce Willis. Has a love interest in Sarah, whose actor is only nine years younger than him, but he is coded as being older, whereas she's definitely feels like a fresh out of college, maybe 30, but definitely like mid-20s, whereas he feels mid-60s. It makes their already not great kidnapping for love dynamic weirder with the age gap. It makes her feel like a young, naive waif who's swept up by this older man who's somehow still sexy, and I think that plays into a lot of uncomfortable tropes. It also plays into a lot of fantasies. Yeah. This definitely feels like it's aimed at older men who might want to have a um, Kansas City shuffle with a young and experienced woman. There's a lot of kind of pandering to older white males in this film. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit later. I want to comment on the issues between Sarah and Frank's relationship. While we were watching it, we talked about how it could easily have been fixed to not be a kidnapping situation. If she'd been in trouble and had sought him out, that could have been a lot better. Or if he had tried to call her to warn her first, 
she doesn't believe him he heads to meet her anyway and then as she is being attacked by the hit squad he is able to save her i believe you now and you know yes please help me make it through this you seem like you know what you're doing i don't Mm mm-hmm I didn't mention it in my summary, but one of the clues they're following is a list of names by a reporter who's been killed prior to the movie start. She could have been that reporter or that reporter's co-worker or sister who would have that knowledge and would have brought that to the table. Mm-hmm. And is endangered by her friendship with a reporter as opposed to because Bruce Willis thinks she's hot, she has to die. There's also the issue of their relationship and how it's tied to Sarah's job. The way that Frank and Sarah end up communicating is via the call center she works at for the pension company where Frank's receive his pension checks. And because Frank is trying to instigate this relationship while she is on the job, she doesn't have the ability to just walk away because she is a service industry worker and that leads to unequal power dynamics and frank is specifically taking advantage of this he's receiving his checks in the mail as he's supposed to and then rips them up to make it so that she has to help him and he is continuously inserting himself into her life to ingratiate himself i feel a lot less uncomfortable with the power dynamics if she was either skilled in combat or has some sort of some like strong tactical skills or even psychological manipulation skills or something to give them any kind of equal footing like to a certain extent i can understand why frank would for lack of a better term kind of imprint on her he's retired from his life as a black ops operative so he doesn't have any close connections all of them were people he worked with and can't really have contact with anymore because he's retired and he didn't have any personal connections because they would just be a liability and a way for him to be attacked so now that he's retired he's kind of alone and lonely and it makes sense that this attractive sounding female voice on the other end of the line is something that he would become attached to but the way that it all plays out is not great at all i think if you did this plot but the conclusion was him realizing that this wasn't okay and that this relationship was built on fantasies and unequal power dynamics and he needs to let that go and embrace people in the real world could have been a way better arc yeah it also kind of sucks that it's all just shuffled away as oh like this wasn't that bad because she ends up being into it because she happens to read like spy romance novels Mm -hmm. and i know we're being pretty hard on the romance in this film i probably wouldn't be as hard if we didn't have a much better example of romance that this film that's done incredibly well between Ivan and Victoria, played by Brian Cox and Helen Mirren, respectively. They were spies on opposite sides during the Cold War. Him Russian, her British, they had an affair. It was found out about, and she was given the option to put him down or lose her job. What did you do? Put three bullets in his chest. But she did it so that he would survive. When I woke alive... she still loved me or else it would have been the head and they haven't seen each other for years but now they're meeting up again and rekindling old feelings and it's honestly really sweet 
seeing Brian Cox play this former KGB agent who early in the film was lamenting about how he hadn't killed anyone in years, being this adorable, cuddly teddy bear towards Helen Mirren, and at one point literally sweeping her off her feet to carry her after she suffers a gunshot wound. And it's just so adorable. And that's a place where the power dynamic is fairly equal. They're both incredibly skilled in combat. They've both killed many people. So clearly this film can do romance. It just didn't or thought this was okay. And either way, that's weird. There's also the fact that the romance between Frank and Sarah was completely fabricated for this film. It wasn't in the original comic. In the original, they have a Sarah analog named Sally, but she's only around for about two scenes. One, just Frank having nice polite conversations with her in the start of the narrative. Another one where he breaks into her apartment for some access codes. Here she's more of a handler for him as a former CIA person, and so she has at least some political social power. In that narrative, the Bruce Willis analog is more aware that he's not a great person, and he seems more mournful that he couldn't actually have any kind of real relationship, even just a friendship with this person, and he's grateful that she made him feel not lonely. Mm -hmm. And that's it. He leaves saying thank you for this, and then she's fine. So now that we've kind of covered all of the romance thing, the other thing that's stood out to me in this film, but in an excellent way, was the cinematography, specifically with the actions and some of the transitions, and how well they feed into this feeling of this world as being hyper-real, and it's incredibly well done. There's a great bit during a car chase where Carl Urban slams into Bruce Willis's <laughs> car, and the car is spinning, and the door opens, and Bruce Willis manages to just elegantly stride out and then just take another step and the car slides right behind him not quite hitting him and lets him take some shots at Carl Urban and it's great that's such a fun action scene and then there's a lot of traveling in this movie at each new location what they'll do is they'll open with a postcard from the location and then the picture on the postcard will slowly transition into the shot it's really well done and it makes everything feel like a caricature which really fits with the themes of what's going on in the film. Although, speaking of traveling, we, we do have to take a detour over to the Pedant Corner. Pedant's Corner. So pedantic. So, at one point in the film, when Frank finally gets to the CIA records office, the record keeper there, Henry, mentions that a day earlier, Carl Urban was down there pulling up his file. This was right after their first meeting in Kansas City. So they both left from there, Carl Urban going to Langley, and Frank and Sarah heading to New York to figure out what's going on with this uh, New York Times reporter. From there, Frank and Sarah then go down to Pensacola, Florida to meet up with John Malkovich's character. Then they go see another dude in Mobile, Alabama, who was also involved in the cover-up. They go back up to the D.C. area, meet with Ivan, and then go to the CIA. At no point does it seem like they get on an airplane, so I am assuming that all of this is drive time. I did the math. It's 33 hours. <laughs> Not including actually staying in any of those locations, just drive time. It's like on the bare edge of 
possible that they could have done it and maybe since they were at at an airport mobile that they took a plane up to langley dc area but it's a bit of a stretch to say oh yeah he was in here yesterday and while they could have maybe slept in cars they seem to be doing pretty well for people who are sleeping in really uncomfortable positions for only a few hours at a time i believe that 100 percent for like the various cia people that tracks but Mm. sarah's an office worker if i work for eight straight hours i want to come home and take a nap let alone 33 hours of turmoil i think part of the reason the logistics don't make sense is that the middle of the film is kind of just a bit weighed down mm-hmm. there's a lot of running around that doesn't necessarily feel super consequential and while you kind of have a sense that where it's going is figuring out why they're on this hit list you don't necessarily know how close they are to figuring that out because they're meeting these different characters mm-hmm. one character explicitly calls it the getting the band back together thing but normally with that you'd have almost like a montage you get that done really fast so they'd all be in one place as soon as possible here mm-hmm. it's drawn out to the point where you don't know if any given character he meets is supposed to be a new member of the band or an essential character for that scene it makes it hard to be invested because you don't really have a sense for where you are the flow feels off i think part of that is that the first important character that you meet outside of frank and sarah is morgan freeman's character joe who for a significant portion of the film you think has died then eventually shows up later with the rest of them right after the cia heist and then is actually killed off later this film doesn't do a good job of letting you know who's important who are we supposed to get emotionally attached to who's gonna be around for a while and who is just going to get killed off in a scene or who is just someone that we need information from and we're never gonna see again i think part of it is that there's so much set up in the first act that is just establishing characters as opposed to establishing the conspiracy and they have to plot dump all of it in act two. One thing I think that's kind of cool that isn't super obvious if you're not looking for it is the color theming that it does. First shot of the film, blue lit room, blue alarm clock, and Bruce Willis wakes up and he's wearing red pajamas. And so he's like, he's a red person in a blue world, basically. You know, once he wakes up and is going about his day, he's wearing gray. He's gone from a default state of redness to sort of a, a neutralness, a nothing. He's put on a costume. He's put on a costume, yeah. And as time goes on, the film will have a lot of blue scenes when it's like the CIA or when things aren't right or when it's kind of stressing this whole like, um, they don't make them like that anymore theme that it has. But then if there's red in the scene, then it means there's progress towards things getting back to the way they should be. When they go to a big cache of weapons in a storage unit, all the doors are red. And even the romance book that Sarah is reading at the start of the movie has a very red cover from all the roses, I think. It's a cool idea, but I don't know that they really do that much with it. Apart from just like red equals good, it doesn't go much deeper than that. It doesn't Mm -hmm. interrogate redness. Mm -hmm. Especially when they associate it with the vice president at the gala. Like, everything is decorated in red. Mm -hmm. I see what they're trying to do, but it's not terribly consistent all the time. I appreciate the idea of it, but I wish they'd push that more. And I wish it had been a little bit more artsy. If they'd had the final scene be all red lit or all blue lit or, or shifts to red when they get the upper hand or something. One thing I do really like about this film is that the way it contrasts Frank with Carl Urban's character. They are very much the same. They both work in CIA black ops. They both are very good at their jobs. They are both equally skilled. They go up against each other a couple of times and they're pretty evenly matched. The one big difference is that while Frank never had any sort of 
relationships outside of work. Carl Urban's character does. He is struggling to be this wet works operative while also maintaining a life as a family man outside of work. It's this very interesting way to juxtapose the two of them and have them be credibly similar in all these ways, but there's this one thing that's really important that makes them different. In the comic, the Bruce Willis character has relatives he's estranged from, and at one point, the Carl Urban character says, like, hey, Bruce Willis, if you don't come with us quietly, I will have that relative killed, and then Bruce Willis's character is like, oh, I already killed your family. I don't make threats to just carry them out. Wow. Yeah, like, the comic is way darker. There is no happy ending in the comic. I'm glad it's not that dark, although it's probably the kind of wishes it had more teeth. But there is a bit where Bruce Willis calls Carl Urban to be dramatic and threatening, and they trace the call to Carl Urban's house, and it's a legitimately tense scene. It's well done. But mm. also, it's weird to think that Bruce Willis is the hero in this. Like, it's... Mm. That's one of the significant issues that I have with this film. It's really hard to get emotionally invested in these characters when they're all murderers. They all kill people. There are only murderers in this room. Yes, their government is telling them to kill people, but they're getting paid by their government. It's not the best. Helen even just takes jobs on the side because she's bored. I do get a bit restless sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't stop. And most of them have the same issue with Frank. It's like they haven't maintained relationships outside of work. So they're very standoffish. They don't share very easily. And they even do that with the audience. It's hard to get emotionally invested in those characters. Carl Urban's the antagonist for most of this film. And I found myself being able to be emotionally invested more in him than pretty much anyone else in the cast with the exception of like Sarah. You might have noticed us calling Carl Urban and Bruce Willis instead of their actual names. I think part of what this film was banking on was you going, hey, it's Bruce Willis. Hey, it's Helen Mirren. Uh, Hey, it's Carl Urban. And trusting the audience's parasocial relationship with the actors to mean they didn't have to actually establish characters for them to care that much about. But I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love you, Helen Mirren, but I still don't care all that much about these characters. Yeah, literally the only time I care about Helen Mirren is when she and Ivan are interacting. She has some funny lines. Helen Mirren's an incredible actress, but I don't necessarily connect with her. Which could be better if this was more camp and we weren't supposed to like these characters. If they were all monsters and it was different monsters bouncing off each other. I could have been fine. Speaking of Helen Mirren, during the scene where they are attempting to kidnap the vice president. For much of it, Victoria Halamiran's character is the one who is firing all the guns. They have this huge Gatling gun that they set up, and then there's also a scene where they're chasing them through the kitchens and she's laying down cover fire. And John Malkovich's character is the one who is like handing her ammo or um, riveting the gun emplacement into the ground and i really like that dynamic of it's the woman who is attacking and then the man who is providing support and reloading it's just this small thing but it helps equalize gender roles i broadly agree with you however i feel like there is an element of john malkovich's character being kind of feminized in the movie as a whole not that scene that scene is fine that's great i love that dynamic it gave me flutterings of mad max story road and i'm always down for mad max story road but malkovich's character is the only one who doesn't have a love interest apart from morgan freeman who gets dead there's also the fact that morgan freeman when introduced is staring at a nurse's ass yeah don't hit on women while they're working yeah yeah it's not good and then in the final scene some wacky shenanigans have led to John Malkovich having to wear a dress for whatever con they're in. I, I'm not going to like come and let me like, as a trans person about this, but 
I still feel like there's an element of weirdness to it. There's also the fact that John Malkovich's character is portrayed as mentally unstable. Mm -hmm. He's kind of the conspiracy theorist archetype, lives in a bunker, is really sure that they're putting drugs in the water to make the frogs gay, whatever. Bruce Willis does mention that he thought he was the subject of a secret government mind control project. As it turns out, he really was being given daily doses of LSD for 11 years. Well, in that case, it looks great. So I understand some of your qualms with the way that character is treated. It's it's not the best. But it's also not the worst. I've seen many worse things. Yeah. You are a coward. Coward. Not every man's brave enough to wear a cold seat. He is allowed to be competent and people don't distrust him solely because he is not all there. Right. There's even one point where he attacks a woman at an airport and they're like what are you doing she's fine like she has nothing and then that woman later comes back and was part of the cia hit team trying to stop them Mm -hmm. and he gets proven right of the characters i was more interested in him and helen mirren and brian cox i kind of wish we'd just taken sarah and bruce willis out of the plot throw them away let them be off doing whatever and let it just be these kind of more wacky characters bouncing off each other that would have been a little bit more fun a little more hyper real a little bit wackier and i would have forgiven some of the film's troubles if it was all kind of a big cappy mess yeah there is one thing that kind of irks me about the film one thing there's the sense that the film is pandering to an older crowd and it loves to talk about the good old days and how much better it was back then uh henry the record keeper is that personified he talks about bad and incompetent the cia is now and how great frank moses was and that was back when things got done and men were real men and all that sort of stuff and back when america was great again yeah it just rubs me the wrong way there's nothing that's necessarily inherently bad with the way that the film interacts with that but it's just something that i'm tired of hearing i think i've said my piece about these films for the time being yeah i think there's probably more to unpack with both of them but i think this is a good starter Mm -hmm. so it comes down to the vote what is moving on i am more interested in watching men in black again don't get me wrong there are some definitely uncomfortable stuff in that and we're going to probably unpack that more in future but I'm also voting for Men in Black to move forward. I think mostly it's I'm more excited to watch Men in Black again. They both have their issues, although I think Red's issues, especially with the relationship dynamics, is much more blatant and, again, was not endemic to the original comic and could have been easily not there. Um, so I'm I'm judging it pretty harshly for the way they handled it. With that, Men in Black is our first winner for our comics bracket and is moving on to round two. What's up in issue two? So, our next issue will be us discussing 2002's Road to Perdition as well as 2014's Kingsman The Secret Service. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We hope you enjoy this new bracket. It was awesome doing the Disney bracket last year and we are very excited for this new year and we hope you all are too. To be sure not to miss us follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Podbean. You can also listen to us directly on Spotify if that's your deal. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for honorable mentions for this new bracket feel free to drop those at any of our social medias. But with that I think we are finished for this week. Thank you all for listening. We hope you listen next time.